I'm pleased to be here today uh, to participate in this webinar to speak about telehealth and telemedicine and some of the key legal and business issues. Advancements in communications technology have improved healthcare delivery in a myriad of ways. Telehealth allows a provider to virtually interact with patients in a way that improves the quality and the delivery of care. Telehealth is a major force in breaking down barriers of access to care that are faced by so many in the United States today. The convenience and real-time interaction that patients receive from telehealth visits are among the primary drivers behind this rapidly growing branch of healthcare delivery. The next slide identifies the topics that we'll be covering today. First, the importance of telehealth in today's healthcare environment really is its ability to increase access to care for isolated populations at a lesser cost. We're going to talk also about some of the highlights from the 2018 CMS report regarding telehealth, which among other things, speaks to the substantial increase in telehealth services volumes in recent years for the Medicare and Medicaid programs. Next, we're going to provide a brief rundown of major legislation that has affected this area of service delivery over the last decade. We're also going to be speaking about the pros and cons of telehealth. There are certainly many pros, which is why it's such a growing field, but uh, a few negatives exist that are noteworthy, so we'll speak about them briefly as well. Uh, we will review different technologies and examples of telehealth services currently in use. We will also touch upon trends in Medicare reimbursement for telehealth services. Um, it's important to note, I'm gonna be using telehealth more or less exclusively in lieu of using both telehealth and, and telemedicine. They are in interchangeable terms, but Medicare uses the term telehealth. So when I reference that, when I use that term, going to be, I'm trying to, trying to be consistent throughout the presentation. Finally, we're going to be speaking about the legal and compliance issues in telehealth, such as in areas of HIPAA, fraud and abuse, which is stark anti-kickback and false claims, and then licensing requirements as well as privileging of providers and credentialing of providers. The next slide reviews some of the key reasons why telehealth can be is so important in our healthcare delivery system at this point. First of all, telehealth is important because it addresses fundamental issues in our healthcare delivery system, namely access and costs. At this point, approximately 20% of the US population resides in rural areas, but only 9% of physicians actually practice in those areas. So, and that's despite any number of federal initiatives that have been uh, geared towards increasing the number of physicians in these, in practicing in rural America, we still really haven't gotten to where we need to be. Telehealth is also important because it allows patients in distant areas to access care, be it diagnostic, interventional, or consultative services, through real-time interactive communications with a provider at a distant site. Telehealth improves access to care and is considered a cost-effective alternative to in-person care in many circumstances. 
Of course, nothing can really replace face-to-face -face interaction between a provider and a patient. But telehealth can be used to reduce costs associated with constant in-person care. Our next slide just summarizes the 21st Century Cures Act, which requires CMS to provide a written report and data on various aspects of telehealth in relation to Medicare beneficiaries on an annual basis. The report includes population of the population of Medicare beneficiary beneficiaries whose care may be improved most in terms of quality and efficiency by the expansion of telehealth services. Identifies also activities by CMS, or rather the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation that tests increased access to telehealth services. Also identifies the types of high volume services that might be suitable to be furnished using telehealth. And lastly, discusses barriers that may prevent the expansion of telehealth. In this next slide, we just have some examples of various important data that is collected in this report on the number of Medicare beneficiaries and their utilization of telehealth, in this case for years 2014 through 16. During this period, the rate of growth year over year of telehealth services is much larger than the rate of population growth, which reflects pretty simply increased provision of covered services via telehealth. As a general matter, in 2016, almost 90,000 Medicare beneficiaries received almost 280,000 covered telehealth services. Some additional highlights in terms of the data in terms of increases in telehealth services between 2014 and 2016 are shown on this slide. In terms of total population, overall increase over those two years was, almost, was a little bit over 65.3%. And the most important increase here is with what are considered to be the truly frail elderly, over 85 years old, there was a 135% increase in telehealth services received by those beneficiaries. In terms of uh, patients that are eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, often referred to as dual eligibles, there was an overall 64% increase in services. And for uh, Medicare only or non-dual eligibility, approximately 67% increase. So, the idea there is that it's increased more for the Medicare population than Medicaid at this point. Um, next area of interest that's covered by the report relates to end-stage renal disease. Uh, for those who, those beneficiaries that were originally tested for end-stage renal disease problems but didn't end up having them, there was a 65% increase in services. And for those that actually were treated with ESRD services, a 74%, 74.5% increase. In terms of chronic conditions that have been treated through telehealth, um, for patients with a chronic condition as a primary diagnosis, there's just over 67%, and those with a non-primary diagnosis of a chronic condition of almost 37%. Finally, um, something that doesn't appear on the side but is noteworthy, 
there was overall a 65% increase in behavioral health diagnoses that were furnished via telehealth over that two-year period. Okay, the next slide is just a summary of legislative history of telehealth. The Affordable Care Act mandated telehealth Medicare reimbursement when it was signed into law in March 2010. This really was a defining moment in the development of telehealth as a bona fide healthcare service delivery mechanism. However, the Affordable Care Act didn't mandate how Medicaid and other payers reimburse telehealth services, which is really the reason why covered telehealth services vary really widely from state to state. In 2017, the American Telemedicine Association reported that at least 33 states had addressed parity payments in their laws. In other words, requiring them to the states to pay the same amount for telehealth visits as they would for in-person visits to different providers. That fact demonstrates the acceptance of telehealth as a legitimate mode of care delivery in this day and age. In MACRA in 2015, there were included several telehealth provisions. A key provision identified the use of remote monitoring or telemedicine as an example of an activity that would be used as a metric to uh, measure physician performance and thus compensate physicians on an incentive basis uh, through macro. And this macro provision offers incentives to physicians and other practitioners who coordinate care using telehealth modalities, even when direct reimbursement for this kind of activity may not be available. Mentioned earlier, the 21st Century Cures Act, which was signed into law 2016. Um, its purpose was to promote and fund the acceleration of research into preventing and curing serious illnesses. This included um, increasing telehealth services, accelerating uh, medical device development, attempting to address the opioid abuse crisis, and lastly, trying to improve mental health service delivery through the use of telehealth. The Interstate Medical Licensure Compact was started in 2017 to provide a means for qualified physicians to practice in multiple states, thus allowing for a significant increase in what I'll call across state health services. Physicians are required to meet a set of eligibility requirements to participate in the IMLC. In 2017 and 2018, the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact processed almost 2,500 applications, which resulted in over 4,500 licenses actually being issued. So this was a big step in making telehealth truly a nationwide initiative. Telehealth was also addressed in the 2018 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule Final Rule with the addition of multiple codes as well as a separate press release in which CMS expressed a willingness to pay for a wider range of telehealth services. In this 2018 final rule, CMS established the requirement for advanced beneficiary consent to be documented in the patient's record 
and also required or established the rule that requires new patients to be seen first in a face-to-face -face encounter with the billing practitioner. Finally, the 2019 Physician Fee Schedule Final Rule includes provisions expanding telehealth services for the treatment of opioid use disorder and other substance abuse problems. In addition, on an interim final rule basis, for patients served after July 1, 2019, the home is a per permissible originating site for a patient with a substance use disorder or a co-occurring mental health disorder. Our next slide highlights some of the pros and cons of telehealth. First of all, as we've talked about, telehealth makes access to healthcare far easier for homebound and elderly patients. Telehealth also provides a portal to services and healthcare prof professionals to patients that reside in rural areas. Telehealth can also facilitate proper follow-up, which also improves the quality of care. Patients save time and money by not having to travel. Providers are also saving expenses that go along with the cost of providing care, including the costs for the provider to provide that care on site, such as rent, et cetera, and other overhead costs. So, Long-term healthcare cost savings can result when patient, I'm sorry, mix that up. Long-term healthcare cost savings can also result when patients receive reminders to take prescribed medications, which helps to, to improve pharmaceutical compliance. Next, when a diagnosis is rare or difficult to treat, Telehealth can help tremendously by connecting patients with specialists from all over the country or even worldwide without the need to travel directly to the specialist. In a similar vein, um, on a more localized basis, smaller facilities, be they hospitals or other types of facilities, can also save money by sharing the services of certain types of specialists, such as radiology psychiatry, and dermatology. Patients expect a personalized experience from their providers today more than ever. Through telehealth, they can have direct access to providers on an as-needed basis, making them feel empowered and more in charge of their health. Not unlike house calls in the past, telehealth technology is helping to further bridge the gap between the provider and the patient. The quality of a patient's care increases significantly when follow-up is maintained. Providers can now monitor patients with a variety of devices, as well as check in with patients to make sure they are following treatment plans. The enhancements to care continuity that are facilitated by telehealth can ultimately lead to better long-range outcomes. Now, the drawbacks of using telehealth are really minimal by comparison to the benefits, but a few are worth mentioning. First, learning and keeping up with changing technology is one of the biggest challenges of telehealth. Purchasing equipment and educating staff on the equipment use really requires careful planning. First, in determining the types of telehealth services that an individual provider would seek to furnish, be it monitoring or virtual visits or whatever, 
The key is there to find a reputable equipment vendor that will work with the provider and their staff to make sure that the intended goals and objectives are, are met. Next, prior to implementing the telehealth services, the objectives, objectives in terms of training staff on the technology need to be set forth with particularity. This is going to include identifying trainers, creating an actual training plan, and most importantly, allowing enough time and resources to conduct the actual training. And also making sure that adequate follow-up training is performed and training for new employees occurs on a regular basis. Another shortfall is the inevitable reduction of in-person interactions with practitioners. While telehealth visits are convenient for both provider and patient, there is still the legitimate concern that nothing really compares to an in-person visit to assess a patient's overall health. Telehealth monitoring and visits should be viewed as a supplement to in-person visits, not a complete replacement for them. For example, telehealth is likely more appropriate when a patient has a minor condition, such as chest congestion, sore throat, or the flu. Telehealth is also very useful in monitoring chronic diseases. Of course, telehealth is not an appropriate uh, medium as the sole service used in diagnosing a patient with a severe injury or an acute condition that requires significant medical attention. And I don't think that it's ever going to be used for those purposes. Another challenge, however, is reimbursement. Uh, particularly from the provider standpoint, staying current with federal and state rules on telehealth reimbursement is challenging to say the least, uh, as they're always in some state of flux. As such, uh, providers need to regularly check the CMS website and related uh, materials for changes and updates to billing, coding, and reimbursement rules. Professional liability coverage is another pretty significant problem with telehealth. In many cases, malpractice coverage is available only on claims that occur within a specific jurisdiction. That's traditional healthcare. Many states simply haven't developed their telehealth regulations to the extent necessary to address potential malpractice issues in an appropriate fashion. Those states really need to um, get up to speed with the laws and regulations that are in place in states that are more evolved in terms of the provision of telehealth services. An example here is that a provider is required to hold a license in the state where the patient is located. Provider licensure requirements across states still vary pretty widely, as does malpractice insurance, as we had just mentioned. That is also particularly true when it comes to non-physician providers such as mid-level practitioners, which complicates the provision of telehealth services significantly. Finally, certain drugs, especially opioids, can't be prescribed or the prescription won't be filled unless the patient is able to pre present a hard copy of the prescription. Opioid prescriptions can't be sent to the pharmacy electronically or called in by phone in, in many states. This creates challenges in telehealth because the patient would still have to visit the office of the prescribing physician to actually obtain the prescription itself. This next slide addresses technologies used in telehealth services. 
Synchronous telehealth refers to the real-time virtual delivery of telehealth services using audio and video technologies to perform the patient visit. Asynchronous telehealth is also known as store and forward, and it's considered a tool that allows the provider, for example, a primary care physician, to share data and the results of the recorded visit with another provider, usually a specialist, who may be needed for a consult or second opinion on a set of images to diagnose a disease or condition. It's important to note that asynchronous telehealth is really in its nascent stages with, in terms of Medicare and is only reimbursable at this time by Medicare through telehealth demonstration programs that are ongoing in Alaska and Hawaii. Remote patient monitoring or RPM is using equipment to monitor patients with chronic conditions so that the provider checks in with the patient on a periodic basis and remotely observes changes in the patient's health over time. Incorporating remote patient monitoring into chronic disease, disease evaluation can really improve a patient's quality of life in terms of constantly having to travel to see their provider, especially when the patient is managing a complex set of processes on their own, such as home hemodialysis. Um, in terms of mobile health technologies, some good examples are smartphone apps that are designed to foster improved health and well-being, ranging from programs which send targeted text messages aimed at encouraging healthy behaviors, notices of prescriptions that need to be filled, which uh, I'm sure everyone who deals with a, a drugstore chain gets them on a fairly regular basis. I know I do. Um, also used to alert populations to disease outbreaks. And the other side of the continuum here are programs or apps that remind patients to adhere to specific care regimens. And the use of smartphones um, allows for the use of cameras, microphones, and sensors that are actually built into the piece of equipment to capture vital signs for input into apps and bridging into remote patient monitoring. The next slide are examples of telehealth services by technology type. Teleconsult services allow a physician in a remote or rural area to receive advice about patients with simpler complex conditions from a specialist in a distant location. Historically, such consults could be as simple as a phone call between the two physicians to discuss the patient's condition, but these communications these days involve a more sophisticated sharing of medical information. The primary example of that is really diagnostic imaging. Um, remote patient monitoring, as we had touched upon earlier, uh, this technology enables providers to monitor patients outside of traditional clinical settings, such as in the home or in post-acute care facilities. RPMs, as I had mentioned earlier, require sensors on a device that wire, wirelessly stores and transmits clinical data about a patient to providers for review. Intraoperative intra monitoring, or IOM, is a technology that allows a physician in another location to perform ongoing checking, recording, and testing during a complex surgical pr procedure that another physician is actually performing. 
A good example of this in performing services in a rural hospital, IOM would be used by a qualified neurologist that is off-site. Purpose of that monitoring is to detect potentially harmful changes in brain, spinal cord, and peripheral nerve function prior to irreversible damage. And that allows the surgeon to focus on what they're doing, but yet have an extra set of qualified eyes and another physician to help with the monitoring of that patient. Now, telehome care provides remote care to allow people with chronic conditions, good examples would include dementia or patients that have a high risk of falling, to live in their own homes. This approach focuses on reacting to emergency events quickly. Deterioration with respect to a chronic condition can be detected at an early stage before an accident or injury actually occurs. More advanced telehome care systems use sensors that the patient wears to monitor serious changes in chronic conditions, as well as sensors in the home to monitor other health risks, including floods, fires, or gas leaks. Wearable sensors can also alert caregivers if a dementia patient would actually leave the house. Medical diagnosis and treatment at the point of care refers to the ability to test and treat patients rapidly at sites close to where they live rather than having, requiring the patient to travel a long distance to the physician or hospital for tests, and then traveling back to obtain the results of those tests. Pointed care relies on portable diagnostic and monitoring devices that can be delivered to remote areas. Pointed care facilities can take the form of anything from a small office space to a mobile health unit operating out of a van or a specially appointed RV vehicle. The next slide shows some examples of new developments in telehealth services. These services are relatively recent additions to those that can be furnished through telehealth that are reimbursed by Medicare. Uh, they're particularly noteworthy because they can be furnished in large part by non-physician providers, which even further reduces the cost of care delivery. And we have listed there end-stage renal disease-related services, most of which are provided by nephrology nurses, medical nutrition therapy through dietitians and nutritionists, um, therapists and counselors are providing smoking cessation counseling. This service is also gaining traction with non-governmental payers. Uh, nurse counselors are providing diabetes, outpatient self-management training services, and then on the, the behavioral health front, uh, structured assessments for alcohol and substance abuse interventions are uh, becoming a lot more popular. And lastly, advanced care planning for chronic disease management, which usually involves clinical social workers to a significant extent. The next slide shows the sites of service in telehealth. First, the distant or hub site is defined as where the provider is located. The provider has the encounter with the patient and then documents the encounter in the same way that they would document a face-to-face -face encounter. Now, the originating sites where a patient is located 
a list of those that are authorized by law to deliver telehealth services under Medicare include those that are listed. Uh, no need to really read all the way through them. However, as a general matter, it's important to note that Medicare pays for telehealth services on a fee-for-service basis at this point. In other words, there's no prospective payment system that directly applies. Um, a larger payment is made to the consulting physician or practitioner at the distance site than the payment made to the facility where the patient is located, which the uh, originating site. The individual at the originating site who presents the patient to the physician or other provider is referred to as the telepresenter. The telepresenter typically has some IT expertise and training and can operate equipment or troubleshoot issues with the telehealth hardware and software used for the patient encounter. This next slide uh, provides information regarding Medicare reimbursement for telehealth services. As a general rule, Medicare beneficiaries are eligible for telehealth services at this point only if the originating site is located in a county outside of a metropolitan statistical area, a, healthcare, a health professional shortage area located in a rural census tract, or a federal demonstration project area. The Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, and the Census Bureau designate metropolitan statistical areas. HRSA offers a Medicare telehealth payment eligibility analyzer via the internet to verify a potential originating site's eligibility for Medicare telehealth payment. And the, uh, the address is shown there on the slide. The geographic eligibility of an originating site is established on an annual basis based on the status of the area as a metropolitan statistical area or other designation provided by HRSA. And it's as of December 31st of the previous calendar year. The next slide touches upon some of the primary legal issues in telehealth. HIPAA compliance, as you would expect, is extremely important in any telehealth service. In my view, the bigger challenge under HIPAA comes out of the security rule rather than the privacy rule because telehealth delivery involves just direct one-on-one -on -one communication between the patient and the provider. So the key questions that need to be asked regarding the HIPAA security rule and compliance with it are who is authorized to access the electronic protected health information or PHI through telehealth at the distance site? Are the communications, materials, and hardware safe and secure and HIPAA ready to protect the integrity of the EPHI? How, the, how will the distance site monitor telehealth services being provided? And lastly, who at the distance site is going to be responsible for assessing and analyzing the risks of breach with these telehealth services? Next, um, addressing fraud and abuse in our healthcare system is always going to be an important element of healthcare law, and certainly telehealth is no exception, particularly as at this point it's reimbursed on a fee for service basis. And that's what traditional fraud and abuse laws are geared to prevent abuse of those types of services. 
as is the case with in-person care. Telehealth arrangements are being investigated for False Claims Act violations, as well as allegedly improper financial arrangements under stark and anti-kickback laws. So telehealth providers need to have protocols in place to avert any type of unintentional coding and reimbursement areas. In terms of licensure, as I had mentioned earlier, each state has independent authority to regulate and oversee the practice of medicine within its boundaries. But state licensure requirements may inhibit a provider's broader use of telehealth because as I mentioned earlier, the provider has to be licensed in the state where the patient is located. At this point, almost 80% of all states require out-of-state providers furnishing telehealth services to be licensed in the state where the patient resides. And I don't think that's going to change. That's facilitated by the licensure compact, compact that we had mentioned earlier. Another barrier that tends to inhibit telehealth growth involves an entity's responsibility to verify the qualifications of providers using their facilities and to define the scope of services each provider has the authority to provide. This is something that's taken place historically uh, at each individual facility, but as more licenses are granted in different states and privileges are granted at a greater number of sites, the legal requirements for these functions become even more complicated. Okay, the next slide basically lays out some of the key information sources that are available on the internet. The American Telemedicine Association provides free state legislative and regulatory trackers regarding telemedicine and telehealth services and policy, and also provides status reports for all hearings, bills, and rules at the individual state level. So that's a, that's a pretty important resource. Uh, the next, the Telemedicine Resource Center, uh, allows the user to explore more about telemedicine, telehealth, legal and regulatory issues, uh, training, program development, and similar issues. Um, I had mentioned earlier that HRSA offers the Medicare Telehealth Payment Eligibility Analyzer. Uh, this is updated once per year. The results of the analyzer are consistent for the entire calendar year and are updated as of December 31, January 1st of the following year. To get a little bit more background on that, the Medicare Learning Network has a fact sheet on Medicare telehealth services that's targeted towards Medicare fee-for-service providers. Okay, at this point, that really concludes my prepared remarks. At this point, I'd like to invite the audience to ask any questions regarding this topic. Thank you so much, George. That was a uh, very informative and um, inclusive presentation. I really appreciate that. Uh, we do have a few questions. And, and actually, I thought of a few questions that I was curious about. Um, um, actually, uh, so I, I do have a question actually myself. Um, you mentioned um, EPHI 
And do you know, um, are when when somebody has a telehealth appointment, are those uh, appointments are they recorded? So does the does the patient um, have access to be able to um, have that later? Or if 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 it was being recorded, would just the patient um, do that themselves? Do you have any idea? I'm just I was wondering about that when you said EPHI, and I was thinking, oh, uh, are these appointments recorded? Uh, well, it, particularly in the context of store and forward, rather than just synchronous telehealth services, which would be like an office visit, these right. they're all stored, but the only individuals and institutions that have access to them are really the clinicians themselves. Okay. okay. Um, at, you know, for for example, there are things that patients are furnished when they leave a facility. Best example is, is with imaging. You can walk out with a CD. Mm -hmm. The purpose mm -hmm. of that CD is to hand it to whomever it is that's going to further your diagnosis. Um, right. Telehealth would allow for the sharing of that information electronically without the patient actually having access to it. But the patient does not receive, to my knowledge, uh, actual recordings of any of the visits. Right, right. That's true. Yeah, people usually just receive a, uh, you know, printout or or a uh, summary of their of their visit. Okay. I, it just occurred to me when you said when you were talking about EPHI. Um, I was just wondering, um, although that would be a huge amount of information, um, you know, of electronic information, um, that would be um, very very hard to store anyway, you know so much data. Sure. Yeah. You know? I, I think that at the end of the day, it becomes resident within on the payer's server. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've gotten far enough yet with EHR technology right. to allow the patient to have access to all of it. But um, right. I wouldn't be surprised if that were a goal. I, right. I just have not heard of any direct examples of it. Okay. And then, um, I had a, I had one other question. What if if physicians, of course, have to be licensed in their own state? Um, is that leading to physicians um, trying to get then licensed in multiple states? And is it easier for them to do that for telehealth, or do they have to? I mean, how does that work? Well, the the licensure component is what takes place through the uh, medical compact, which was formed around. 2017. Uh, I had mentioned that earlier, going back to my notes here. Um, the Sorry to throw that out. I was just thinking. Compact. And um, the issue then becomes in terms of physicians seeking licenses in multiple states, that is absolutely true. Um, I've been, I have a, a couple of uh, web based telehealth initiatives. Mostly on the private, these are on the private payer side, but mm -hmm. I've worked with, on behalf of our clients, physicians who have, I guess the, the largest number was 28 different licenses in different mm. states. Wow. So they're really primed for telehealth right. in a significant way. Right, I would think I so. I think that privileging would be another issue for them because they'd have to be privileged at the facilities where the patients were being seen. Oh, okay. 
All right. Okay. And that's that's what takes a lot of time because licensure and privileging and credentialing are actually two separate components. So okay. there's been a lot of progress on the licensing side, not as much on the credentialing and pri privileging side. But from a credentialing and privileges standpoint, that's always been a fairly complex profit process for providers anyway, um, okay. even with traditional medicine. Okay, I didn't think about the um, privileging part. Okay. All right, well, we have a few other questions here. Um, what organizations and specialties are currently performing the most telemedicine services? As a general matter, uh, as a general matter uh, telehealth is really popular within uh, tertiary care facilities, academic medical centers, I would also refer to them as. When a diagnosis is kind of rare or difficult to treat, telehealth can really help a lot by connecting patients with subspecialists at these major centers without the need to travel directly to the provider's office. And as a general matter, by specialty type, it's medical specialties which rely heavily on visual signs of disease or condition that telehealth has become most popular with. And best examples of that at this point are radiology, psychiatry, and dermatology. Okay, all right. Um, and we have another one here. Um, is there a limit to who can provide telehealth services? Uh, in terms of the, the clinicians, no, there really isn't. Um, all types of clinicians that receive reimbursement for Medicare services uh, physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, nurse midwives, uh, clinical nurse specialists, CRNAs, uh, clinical psychologists and the like, who receive reimbursement from Medicare can provide their services through telehealth, subject to the geographic restrictions that are established at this point for Medicare through the demonstration projects or having to the patients have to reside in a particular rural area. Uh, you mean, do you mean like state by state or? Well, um, uh, remember we were talking earlier about the establishment of metropolitan statistical areas. Okay. Oh, and okay. patients who reside in a metropolitan statistical area can't receive telehealth services from Medicare at this point. They have to be located in a rural centric census tract. And those oh, are established okay. by the Healthcare uh, Resources and Services Administration. Or okay. HRSA. Okay. All right. And then can you... Just, I'm, oh, sorry. Oh, go I'm ahead. Good. No, go I, ahead. I was just oh. going to mention, as, as a side note, I did include the link to the eligibility analyzer for Medicare telehealth. And a provider can input their information there for purposes of establishing whether or not they could qualify as an originating site. And it's all based on their location. Okay, wonderful, thank you. I'm glad you put that link in there, wonderful. Okay, and then can you explain again the differences, I know you went over it in your presentation, but can you explain the difference between telemedicine and telehealth again? Certainly. Um, these, two, these terms are used interchangeably. Um, this is an example, as I had mentioned, 
Medicare uses the term telehealth exclusively, whereas the professional associations and industries associations that are out there all use telemedicine. I think that um, a simple way to understand these terms is to view telemedicine as a division of telehealth, where telehealth refers to the use of communications technology for healthcare as a means for providers to access a patient's clinical health assessment, diagnosis, intervention, and other related information. So it is really a database-oriented term. And it also includes providing non-clinical services like conferences and education across a, dis a distance. So it's intended to be much broader than the term telemedicine, which is really geared towards improving a patient's health by real-time interaction, interactive communication between the patient at the originating site and the provider at the distant site. So uh, telemedicine as a subset of telehealth is probably the best way to view it. And I think that's one of the main reasons why uh, that's consistent with Medicare's definition of telehealth. And ultimately, Medicare is kind of the um, the source of reimbursement policy that's basically followed by non-governmental payers ultimately because they set the standard. So that's the difference between the two. Uh, also, telehealth is easier to pronounce over and over again as opposed to <laughs> telemedicine. Got it. Okay, well... Um, I think that's enough of our uh, questions at the moment. If we have other questions that are going to come in, um, and if we have other questions, we're going to answer those offline. Um, and um, I wanted to thank you so much. Did you have any other words of advice or anything that you would like to leave us with at this time? Um, I actually don't, Catherine. Again, it was a pleasure participating in this webinar. and. Um, it's a growing field, and a lot of exciting things are happening, and uh, it's uh, going to continue to grow. So it's a good idea to get in on the ground floor of this and understand it as a professional um, in order to uh, stay ahead of the curve in terms of care delivery. Okay, well, the pleasure was ours. I know that... Um, We've learned a lot about um, differences between telehealth and telemedicine and um, some of the different uh, legal and technical aspects of that. So I uh, very much appreciate that. So thank you for joining us today.